today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about Canada-China relations, which have been frayed, to say the least, over the last uh, number of years now because of the uh, the two Michaels. Now, they're back on home turf, and that's great news. But what happens going forward? Is there going to be a tougher stance now uh, towards China from this Canadian government? Uh, the majority of Canadians that were polled said, actually, uh, yeah, they'd like to see that. Uh, some analysts are suggesting that uh, there already may be some hints that that's about to happen. So what are the implications, and maybe even more importantly, if Canada wants to get tough with them, what's that look like? Exactly what are we expected to do to, to try to join that? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper. Elliot, of course, is an emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, pleasure to have you on the program. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Well, thank you, Bill. It's just been a glorious weekend here in Ottawa. Yeah, I know. Unusually mild. This is, I'll take this anytime because uh, we know it's coming around the corner, uh, especially in Ottawa, but even here in southern Ontario. So, talk to us about this. You, you've hinted at this in some of our past discussions before the uh, uh, the two Michaels finally got home here about what this is going to do long term. Uh, talk to us about getting tough. I know that uh, the Prime Minister uh, used the phrase Indo-Pacific relationships when he was talking, yes. uh, not necessarily about China, but he was going on about what was going on there in Canada's relationship uh, with uh, with Taiwan and even with Japan, as a matter of fact. Uh, and and let's maybe analyze that part of it first. I mean, words matter in situations like this, don't they? Yes, we have a shifting perception about what Asia is and also, of course, the rise of China. The term, uh, here's some political science for us this morning, get used to it. We are going to be hearing more from our government, as we've now just started to do, on something called the Free and Open Indo-Pacific, FOIP. We even have an abbreviation for it. And that's because of a Japanese-led initiative uh, to stand back from what's going on and say, things have changed, we have to deal with the rising China, Uh, let's stop talking about the Asia-Pacific, which, of course, I've taught about for <laughs> very long. Let's talk about the Indo-Pacific. That's India and, uh, and Japan straddling the, you know, the periphery of China. And let's start conceptualizing this as a way of China, in a sense, versus everybody else. China has tried to close off the South China Sea and the East China Sea, uh, so, which um, is of concern, of course, to, to Japan. And Japan is pushing back, and we, what we're seeing now is a strengthening of the security architecture of that region, which has had high tensions and low mechanisms for dealing with those tensions. So now we are now under Japanese leadership, because uh, you referred to our prime minister using that phrase. It's when he was, he was talking, uh, congratulating the new Japanese prime minister, who was their foreign minister, before coming to that office. So we have a, a shifting of the Canadian vocabulary to indicate perhaps a shifting of the Canadian position to align with the rest of the uh, uh, Western and uh, Democratic alliance dealing with the rise of China. How nervous is maybe the right word to use here, Elliot? How nervous is Japan about what's going on in China? They have every reason to be very concerned. Uh, the They, you know, we're here, they're there. Uh, there's been, let us say, a history between those two states. It wasn't all that long ago, by the way, that we were in our part of the world talking about, oh, the rise of the, you know, kind of the great yellow peril, but it was about Japan and how they were going to inevitably take over. That didn't happen. And now we are recalibrating to say we had a, a friendly 
we have a friendly democratic country, Japan, that is urging action in a variety of ways, including the change of the vocabulary and, there, and with it the, uh, the architecture of the region, to deal with the rise of China, which is increasingly not only powerful, but truculent, and therefore a threat, uh, an existential threat, as is increasingly the vocabulary being used uh, outside. So Japan is, remember, they also saved the Trans-Pacific Partnership after the U.S. pulled out, and we thought it was dead, but no, they brought it back to life, and now it's the comprehensive and progressive <laughs> TPP because Canada was invited to join. China says it wants to join. They'll never be progressive. But when you look at what's gone on, and I'm getting this impression from some of the uh, other folks that have studied this as extensively as, as, as you have, uh, that it's it's about time to stand up to china they, i think one person used the analogy it's it's like the you know the neighborhood street gang that said this is our turf we don't anything that goes on in the south pacific you got to come through us uh and and i think japan certainly worried about that but so is the united states maybe not so much under trump but certainly under biden yes the uh, there's actually a certain there's a bipartisan approach here in a, in a sense there's a growing realization about the um the strength of China, its intentions, the nature of that regime, which we've gone in, in terms of shift of vocabulary, we talked about China. Now we're talking about the Communist Party of China, reminding us that this is a one-party state under the control of the Communist Party, which is firmly under the control of Xi Jinping, who is uh, changing how China decides to present itself to the world, uh, this wolf-warrior diplomacy. The idea that China should... Um, bide its time and hide its strength, which was the mantra of preceding uh, heads of, of the Communist Party. That's gone. It's no, no, no Biden hide anymore. This is, we're standing forth, and you, you know, we can do what we want with Hong Kong. Look, nothing much happened. We, we can do what we want in Xinjiang. Look, there's not much pushback on this. Meanwhile, the West is essentially in disarray. The U.S. is showing great signs of... Um, well, you'll be talking about that in your next segment, I guess, what's mm -hmm. going on in the U.S. But the, the U.S. Uh, is, is the nominative, normative leader of the alliances against a rising China that at the same time is economically interdependent with the world. So we have a very complicated situation, but a strengthening of the, re of, of the uh, resolve to do something about the kind of China that we now come to see. And, of course, Canada... Uh, we came to see it more clearly after the taking of our hostages. There, there are a couple of ways that we can approach this. So I'll talk about the economic and trade stuff in a second, sure. but I want to get to the, the to the military aspect of this. Uh, I think most of us are aware of, of the NATO alliance and, and the relationship uh, that the United States and, and Canada, for that matter, have with the NATO nations. And, and the, mo the mantra there, of course, is an attack against one is an attack against all. Now, there is, there, yeah. there is no such deal like that at, at, when you come to the Asia-Pacific, uh, but there is an understanding, isn't there, and has been for generations now between China or between Japan and the United States, that look at if, if it gets hit you know, over here, we're looking to you guys. And, and uh, I think there's an understanding that, yeah, we've got your back on this. But I guess the question we're all asked now, seeing what's going on in China these days, is how far would the United States go to back up China, or Japan, Japan that is? There is a, a actual defense treaty. There's a security of, of arrangement, a, a, a strategic security alliance between the U.S. and Japan. A bit of an irony, given the past, but also South Korea. Uh, the, we haven't talked about Taiwan. There is no 
Article 5 regarding, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. There is no agreement like in NATO uh, about Taiwan. The flashpoint right now for the rise of China as an existential threat uh, is, is Taiwan and the possibility that something bad could happen there with all that firepower going on in the air every single day um, is, is a grave concern. And the U.S. has followed strategic ambiguity, shaping the behavior of China and of Taiwan uh, by saying, we don't have a guarantee. But China, you better be sure to realize if you attack Taiwan, we just might well uh, come to their defense. And they've been sailing up, and, and Canada has joined on this uh, bill, sailing through the Taiwan Straits to say this is free and open Indo-Pacific. This is international waters. But at the same time, shaping Taiwan's behavior to saying, oh, yeah, we back you, but don't declare officially independence. That This whole question of strategic ambiguity in the role of Taiwan is also under a review. Can we afford that kind of um, mixed messaging to China anymore? Keep an eye on Taiwan. And that's going to be a key part of this right now. I mean, it was one thing when, when the United States decided to flex the muscle against North Korea. I, and that was, a, that was a real threat. I mean, let's not belittle that. We understand that. But, I mean, you're dealing with a kind of a, a, a crazy guy. Um, I, I know he fell in love with Donald Trump. But other than that, there was a real concern there about nuclear proliferation going on in that area. Well, yeah. uh, but it's, it's a totally different thing to stand up to China in a similar situation. The yeah, We are at... One of those, I won't say hinge of history, that's too uh, fraught a term, but we are at a moment clearly of a critical transformation in the geopolitics of the globe with the rise of a power that says we are not trying to overthrow the status quo, we are trying to become the status quo, that's China. So don't worry, there won't be a war. But at the same time, China is behaving in such a fashion that it has raised alarms, rather belatedly. Uh, we, we've not been clear-eyed in regard to what kind of country, what kind of regime this is. But that, that's, uh, that's passing. We are now into an era of much more clarity about the nature of the Communist Party of China and what the world has to do about that. At the same time, they are still the second having to be the world's um, largest economic power. So can we, how do you deal with an economic powerhouse that's increasingly a military powerhouse with global ambitions? That's a key question for us going forward. And I know there have been some talks and actually uh, uh, some collaborations between the Japan, Australia, and the United States. I know there was some, some angst and, and hand-wringing here that, well, why isn't Canada included in that? Uh, I, I, I'm not so sure that those three countries are looking at Canada as a military partner in this, although we could, I suppose, play a role in that, but not to the degree that they're going to right now. What is the United States, and for that matter, Japan, looking for from Canada right now in this whole scenario? I think uh, clarity, essentially. They're looking to us to say it's time for you to be a lot more precise on where you stand on, on the whole issue. We, we can talk about Huawei, but on the whole issue of what to do about the rise of China, which is considered an existential threat by, or an existential issue or a strategic central issue by NATO. Uh, vocabulary differs wherever you're looking, but essentially... China has come into focus primarily because of its power, but also how it's using its power. And Canada, uh, <laughs> look where we stand. We've been urged for years to diversify away from over-dependence on the U.S. So, so there's the rise of China. And you 
if you see today's paper, our, our ambassador there said, look, you can't overlook the economic opportunities Canadian businesses for dealing with China. But uh, at the same time, the Canadian public is saying we don't want to. How do we handle this mix of security concerns and economic concerns? If you diversify away from the U.S. and then you go to China, now you have to diversify away from China. Where are you going to go? So the, uh, the, the whole issue of, of a middle power, uh, a trading nation like Canada, that depends on a rules-based international order in a turbulent time that's approaching, uh, quite clearly we know where our ultimate alliances are. We're with, the, we're with the U.S., we're with the democracies of the world. But day-to-day, how does that play out? And what, so what everybody is looking for from Canada right now is clarity, and we have to find a way to be clear in this very rapidly shifting strategic and economic environment. I only got a couple of minutes here. Every time you and I get into these conversations, I wish we could go on for hours. And there's so many <laughs> angles to this. Uh, two quick things, though. Uh, first of all, I think it's a no-brainer that Canada's got to make a decision about Huawei and simply say, no, they're not going to be part of this. The 5G, everybody else has been pressuring them. It's, it's time to get off the fence on that. But more importantly, what about making a statement to China itself? Uh, you know, the Olympics are coming up. The Beijing Olympics are coming up. Uh, I don't... I think countries are going to not send their athletes. That looks like that's going to happen anyway. But there is some talk right now is, well, you know what? The diplomats, the governments can ignore it and not send representatives to the opening or closing ceremonies. That would anger China, certainly, and there's always going to be repercussions. But it, it would make a bold statement to the Chinese government that we're sick and tired of this. Yeah, how bold is it to not send a top diplomat, but to a top politician, but send a top diplomat instead? Um Again, it's this conundrum that China is already here, and what do you do about it? And they play on that conundrum. Uh, I was just reading up on Huawei, knowing our conversation was coming, and the Chinese are saying that, yeah, with, with Meng behind us, why don't we go ahead and proceed? Uh, and their, their response is, well, the whole issue of Huawei is that it's 99% Canada's decision is dependent on what the U.S. wants. Uh, but the U.S. wants to do this, and... Um, well, we can go ahead and cut it off, Canada, but China is not to be trifled with, and therefore the matter of Huawei's 5G in Canada could remain a stalemate. That's not likely to, I think, we're, that decision has de facto been made. And by the way, where is our champion, Nortel? Mm-hmm. And we know what happened to Nortel, including possibility, going full circle on our conversation, that China behaved in a way, using its uh, expertise to this is reports and allegedly to infiltrate it's a whole question of intellectual property theft and cyber espionage by a state in this case the cpr did they did they really infiltrate uh, nortel stay there for eight months ransack it and then basically you know having stolen everything crushed it so canada does not have a contender in 5g we have to look at it. we have to look at Huawei. so this kind of competition for the future is what china sees in a very clear-sighted way they are trying to dominate the, not the, uh, not the sawdust into furniture present relationship that we have with China. They, they're talking about cyber dominance in the future. The technologies of the future are going to rest with China. China, by the way, just purchased, with our, our consent bill, a, a lithium producer. So a Chinese mm-hmm. electric battery producer has just a company has just bought a Canadian company producing one of the key rare earth elements, lithium. Our trade with China is up almost 30% this year. What do you do with a China that's already there, 
but behaves in a way that's so abhorrent uh, to so many people in Canada and around the world. And that's kind of our conundrum right now. It is, it is. And, you know, all, all the governments, federal and provincial, are talking about electric cars as the future right now. Where do you think they're going to get their batteries? That's another, excuse the phrase, Trump card that they hold. Hey, Elliot, we've got to leave it there for now, unfortunately. I'm hoping we can pick this up in the next couple of days. Thanks, as always, for this. Great talking Anytime, with you. Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.